It's Friday 1st of September and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up, we'll be hearing about China's latest stimulus measures and whether they're enough to turn the economy around. But for now, I'm joined once again by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi there, Neil. Hi there, David. So, summer holidays are nearly over. The kids are nearly back at school. I thought we could celebrate by looking ahead to what central banks are going to do when they get back to their meetings. Bank of Canada's the first DM bank decision post-summer. That's in the coming weeks. Stephen Brown, our Canada research head, thinks they'll hold even though July inflation was a bit hotter than expected. But market focus increasingly on what the ECB, Fed and Bank of England are going to be doing later this month, given all the data that's come out since their last meetings. Let's start with the ECB. Decision due on the 14th. We've just this week had some new inflation readings. Uh, The ECB raised rates 25 basis points at their last meeting in July to 3.75%. What are we expecting for the September meeting? Yes, you're right. The big news from the Eurozone over the past week has been that inflation data. And I think a lot of the the headlines that it generated were pretty negative for the ECB. A lot of the focus on the fact that inflation was a bit stronger than expected, and therefore it was kind of hawkish for, for monetary policy. One of the points that we've been making in our research analysis, and indeed debating internally, is that actually, although the headline number was a bit disappointing, the core number was a bit better core inflation edging down. And it's obviously core inflation that matters more for policymakers. It's core inflation that's related more to what's happening in, in the real economy. Headline obviously being buffeted by food and energy. And of course, the, the strength of headline inflation being driven by energy in the Eurozone over the past month too. So actually dig a bit deeper. There's better news for the ECB from the inflation data that I think some of the headlines suggested. Question is, what does that mean for September's meeting, as you say? Some of the comments we've had from policymakers, I think they cut both ways. You can interpret them as being perhaps one more hike to come in September, others perhaps suggesting that we could be in for a pause. It's a pretty close call. For what it's worth, we think there's still one more hike coming. And we've penciled that in for September, but it wouldn't be a great surprise if it got pushed back to to later in the year. What about the, the, the Bank of England? The MPC meets Thursday after the ECB on the 21st of September. They hiked 25 basis points at the start of August to 5.25%, 14th move in a row. But we've had some, some grim economic data out of the UK of late. How do you think they're going to play it? Is, is it time, do you think, for, for the bank to stop? Well, it's pretty grim activity data out from, from the UK over the past week or so. So we've had a pretty shocking set of PMI data. We've had weakness in some of the bank lending data. The housing market data have turned down as well. But we've not yet had much evidence of weaker price pressures, at least on a kind of widespread level. Perhaps some evidence that the labour market is loosening, but not to a very great extent. I think this is the bind that the the Bank of England finds itself in at the moment, that the economy, the real economy does seem to be weakening, but there's not yet much sign of inflation coming down, at least not to the same extent that we've seen in the US, for example. So what does that mean when they next meet? Again, I think like the ECB is pretty finely balanced. We've opted for one more 25 basis point hike in this cycle, but again, wouldn't be a great surprise if they either delayed or cancelled that altogether. Crucially with the Bank of England, there's one more inflation and labour report due before they meet. So we get another set of wage data and unemployment data, another set of inflation data. I think if they show some signs of softness, 
then that might just about tip the balance in favour of pausing, but it's a pretty close call. It sounds like two finely balanced meetings from the ECB and Bank of England. What about the Fed? We're just hours away from the August payrolls report release. The uh, first FOMC statement post-summer is due on Wednesday 20th. That's just a day before the Bank of England. We've been arguing for a hold after July's 25 basis point hike. That seems to be the market's expectation too. On the other hand, Jerome Powell wrapped up his Jackson Hole speech with this pledge to, quote unquote, keep at it until the job's done. What do you think that means in in the context of the US growth and inflation environment? Yes, and those comments provoked quite a lot of internal discussion at Capital Economics too. How should we interpret those? What do they mean? I think a couple of points are worth stressing. I think the near-term challenge for the Fed is much easier than it is for the ECB or particularly the Bank of England. I think you're right that they're, they're probably done with tightening for now. There's been much better news on the inflation front from, from the US. And over the past week, we've had more encouraging data on that front from the, the PCE numbers. So inflation coming down more quickly in the US, and that eases a bit of pressure on the, the Fed. But what did Powell mean when he pledged to keep at it until the job's done? And for that matter, what did Hugh Pill mean when he said over the past week that the Bank of England would uh, see the job through? I think this is the type of language we hear when we get to the end of tightening cycles. The challenge central banks face is that they think they have either delivered sufficient or they are close to delivering sufficient amount of policy tightening. But they don't want to convey that to markets quite yet because the fear then is that markets start to anticipate rate cuts either later this year or more likely next year. And then that loosens financial conditions and so undoes some of the work that they've done with policy tightening. So there's a huge challenge of communication here, trying to tell the market that we think we're getting close to the end of policy tightening cycles or that we're at the end, but don't get too over-eager in anticipating policy loosening to come because we don't want financial conditions to loosen and undermine that that tightening. I think that's the, that's what's really at the heart of this this language that we're st- starting to see from Powell and from, from other central bankers. On a very different note, ErnieBot was made available to the Chinese general public by, by Baidu this past week. Baidu's China's Google equivalent. I know that you and the team have been intensely focused on our upcoming Spotlight project. So what's the significance of Ernie in, in the context of that? Well, I think there's several interesting angles here. But as you say, one of the things we've been spending a lot of time on over the summer is our annual spotlight report. This is something we do each year. And this year, we're looking at the economic and market implications of AI. Now, I can hear everyone groaning. The last thing we need is another report on AI. But I think one of the things we've discovered when we have dug into this in a bit more detail is that what's missing from this debate and discussion has been a comprehensive framework for thinking about all of the economic implications of AI. Lots of good stuff written about the implications for productivity at the frontier, for example, and for potential job losses, but nothing that pulls that together or thinks about how technology will be disseminated uh, in different ways across different economies and indeed in different sectors, and then ties that back to different asset markets and the implications for investors. So that's the challenge, and that's what we're trying to address in our annual Spotlight report. Now, what are the key messages? Well, we'll be releasing our report at the end of this month. But one of the key points is that in our judgment, AI has most of the characteristics of what's called a general purpose technology. Now, that sounds a bit arcane, I know, but it's important because general purpose technologies have really, really wide applications. And they're the type of technologies that tend to transform economies and affect all sectors of economies. 
once more, they're the type of technologies that tend to be transformative for productivity growth and economic growth. So if we believe that AI is a GPT, general purpose technology, then we should expect some pretty wide ranging and dramatic economic consequences as a result. And you know, indeed, we are pushing up our, our productivity growth forecasts. And indeed, we are embedding that in our forecast for economic growth. The question which gets us back to China is how does that technology uh, disseminate across different countries? And what, another key insight is that policy environments matter. Now, I think the really interesting point here is that Baidu had the technology ready to go. They were waiting for the green light to launch it from regulators. That's very different to what's happening in the US where regulators don't appear to be holding back the development and the implementation and dissemination of the AI technology to anywhere near the same extent. And I think for that reason, the US will remain ahead of China in the AI race. And that's something we'll be coming back to indeed will be a key feature of our Spotlight report. That was Neil Shearing on AI and this month's big central bank meets. On AI, as Neil mentioned, Spotlight is out the last week of this month and there'll be a series of in-person and online events as well as proprietary data to accompany the main report. Watch out for all of that. On the September central bank decisions, the team will be holding a drop-in, that's one of our short online briefings, just after the MPC meeting on the 21st of September. Watch out for details of that. There are also drop-ins in the coming week about uh, European gas demand heading into the winter and about rising political risk in emerging markets. I'll link to details of those events on the podcast page, but you can find all the details of our in-person and virtual meets on our events page on our website. Now, perhaps the market story of recent weeks has been what's been happening to China's economy. A series of ugly data readings, surprise rate cuts, and problems among property developers and the companies that lend to them have conspired to again fuel hard landing fears about the world's second biggest economy. Investor nerves haven't been helped by the relative silence from Beijing. If the economy is in trouble, then where's the big stimulus? Our China team has described policy paralysis at the top and warned of more downside risk if something wasn't done. Well, an announcement on Thursday suggested the government is getting into gear and responding to the weakness. Earlier Friday, I spoke to Mark Williams, our chief Asia economist, and I started by asking whether this announcement signaled that the government is getting over its paralysis. Well, it does feel like there's been a, a bit of a step up over the past few days. We've been through weeks in which, if you're just reading the headlines as they come in through the day, there's been loads of really small piecemeal measures often taken by quite low levels of, of government. But with, there's been a couple of much bigger developments over the past week. So both of them affecting the property market. One of them is to lower the minimum down payment requirement. So previously, floor for down payment requirements nationwide for first home purchases was was 30%. That's been lowered to 20%. The actual floors that uh, apply in each city and region are set by local governments, but nearly everywhere they had been at this national mandatory floor uh, of 30%. So cutting that to 20% should make a big difference to down payment requirements. The second thing that's happened is that the officials have been putting pressure on banks to lower mortgage rates. And those are now, we're getting more details about that, that that is coming through. And so it looks like most mortgages are going to be about 80 basis points cheaper as, as a result of this. So I think homeowners need to go to their banks, apply for the lower rate, and that should get them about an 80 basis points cut in their, in their mortgage rate. So no, that's a that's a that's a pretty um, sort of hefty move, at least for homeowners. There's been lots of talk about 
you know, China's need to do more to support households to to boost the economy. You're talking mortgage relief. It, it's not quite the the sort of direct checks in the post fiscal stimulus approach that the US, for example, took during COVID. But it is an indirect form of stimulus for households, isn't it? Does this really mark a, a, a shift in the policy approach? It is a boost to households. We've run the numbers. We think that it will put something, well, just under 0.2% of GDP into household pockets in total. So not, it's not huge. It's something. Um, but here's the thing. The People's Bank is always worried about bank uh, profits. You know, They're concerned about their health bank balance sheets. They think there's a lot of hidden bad debt on, on their balance sheets. So one of the constraints on them cutting lending rates and mortgage rates has always been, well, what's that going to do to bank profits? The way they've threaded that needle this time is that they're also telling banks to lower deposit rates. So simultaneously, mortgage rates are coming down and deposit rates are coming down. And the way that that's been constructed is such that essentially bank profits are left unchanged. But um, the flip side of that is that the gains to mortgage holders from cheaper mortgage rates are being almost exactly offset by losses to household depositors from getting lower deposit rates. So it's hard to argue from this that there's going to be a major boost to sort of household spending. People in aggregate aren't going to be feeling a lot better off. Now, it might be that people with really big mortgages are going to really welcome this. But I think it's hard to make the case that this is going to make a major difference to overall household spending. So it might be then that this is all about the property market, really. But even then, I do have a, a few doubts. I don't want to completely downplay the importance of this, but is it really the case that property sales are extremely weak because mortgages are expensive or down payment requirements are too big? Or is it that people are worried about the viability of developers and all the headlines about country garden over the past few weeks? Surely that's really a, a bigger constraint on people buying uh, a property. And right now they're worried that the, the developer they buy from might not be there to, to, to finish the, the project. And maybe they're also worried about housing prices. I mean, maybe it's, it's simply that the, the cost of housing is is too high. So I think I'm, I'm not convinced that this in itself is enough. It's, it's one of the bigger steps that we've seen so far, but I don't think it's in itself going to be enough to put a floor into the housing market. But the signal that the government is you know, rolling out measures to support the property developers may be enough to, to engender some confidence among among households to get back into the market. It may be. We'll have to we'll have to see. But if you have too many more headlines about country garden or other big developers getting into trouble, then I think that that will you know, offset the impact on on the sentiment. So I think we still need to see more from the central government to reassure home buyers that developers will be there to deliver the the projects, or they need to do something else for, for the rest of the economy, for other parts of the economy to shore up growth. So this isn't the the, the stimulus uh, announcement that markets perhaps have been waiting for. Where does that leave the economic outlook? We've had the PMIs out uh, this past week. Uh, also, our own China activity proxy, our proprietary measure of, of underlying growth. Talk a little bit about what they say. Talk a little bit about the, the outlook for the economy from here. Well, the recent data haven't been quite as as bad as I think a lot of people had feared. And all of the, the talk about China has been extremely negative for the past few weeks. Our China activity proxy, we, we published the final estimate of that for July a few days ago. And that actually showed a pickup in July. So that ran contrary to the, to the general flow of data for July. But then after that, we got the PMIs for August. And they were also up and beating expectations. So 
the uh, official manufacturing PMI roads, the official construction PMI roads, and the uh, alternative manufacturing PMI from Taishin rose quite considerably, rose from about 49 to about 51. That's a pretty big increase. So maybe things are firming up a little bit. I think that that, it, that that's linked to this mini fiscal boost that we're that we're seeing right now. The government has told local governments to use up their annual bond quotas, issue them by the end of this month, spend them by the end of next month. And so that I think is probably helping to shore up a bit of construction activity that's going into infrastructure and that's maybe filtering through to, to the manufacturing sector. So we are, I think there's good reason to think that right now things have firmed up a little bit. But essentially, that's a pretty short-lasting boost. By the end of next month, these proceeds will have been spent. So we'll need a bit more if this run of, of, of better data is to continue. Our expectation is still that we will get a little bit more, that that, that, that the central government will get its act together and, and push through a bit more fiscal support, maybe a bit more for infrastructure, a bit more to get behind developers or to do more low-income housing, for example, or possibly some more fiscal spending into what the leadership calls strategic emerging industries, things like AI, electric vehicles, semiconductors, and so on. They still have options. And so that's where we're expecting to see some sorts of announcements over the next few weeks. Finally, put some numbers on all of this. Remind us what our forecast for this year's growth is. Well, we think that the target for this year, the official target is 5%. We think that they they will just about get growth to 5%. That doesn't really require a great deal given how weak the economy was at the end of, of last year. And indeed, on our own in-house measure, because we think the economy contracted outright last year, we think this year it could grow by about 6.5% in total. That sounds pretty strong, doesn't it? It sounds pretty good, but that actually only suggests that growth will be about 3% annualized in the second half of of the year, which for an economy which has had a, a poor rebound from zero COVID is not actually that that good. I think maybe next year's numbers are a bit more indicative of, of the overall sort of strength of the economy as we see it. We think that both on the official numbers and in reality, growth will be below 5%, so 4 4.5%. That sort of, I think, tells us about the, the, the degree of slowdown in structural growth that we've seen over the past uh, few years. And that's something uh, I think it's important to, to note that isn't going to be massively changed by stimulus because a lot of that slowdown is, we think, structural in nature. It's about China just adapting to a, a, a slower growth uh, environment. That was Mark Williams, our chief Asia economist. I'll post our report on the mortgage announcement and our latest cap reading on the podcast page. And we'll, of course, be continuing to track the news flow from Beijing and letting you know what it all amounts to. But that's it for this episode. You can find all our insight on our website, capitaleconomics.com. And for full access, check out CE Advance, our premium platform. And until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.